So I've been very, very fortunate and extremely grateful that my model has has brought me this far, you know, three, almost three years in. So I'm so grateful that not having a brick and mortar has been successful for me. And I think that's just because I have no desire and I don't, I'm not wishy-washy on if I ever will own a brick and mortar. Um, so staying true on that path has kind of helped, you know, fizzle that out. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Chef Jay Chong, owner of Jay Chong Eats in Asheville, North Carolina, and a prominent competitor on the HBO Max cooking show, The Big Brunch. So you may be thinking, wait, I thought this was a podcast about artists. You are absolutely right. And in my mind, there is no question that chefs are artists. I mean, come on, were you to matriculate from the Culinary Institute of America, one of the world's most respected culinary schools, guess what? You wouldn't get a diploma in cooking or gastronomy or or chefing. I just checked to confirm your diploma would be in the culinary arts. Chefs use their techniques, knowledge, and creativity to engage and surprise our senses in aesthetic experiences. That means art to me. Okay, Back to Jay. She had been working in some of Asheville's finest kitchens, and just so you know, Asheville is a major foodie destination, when she decided to strike out on her own by creating her own culinary business, Jay Chong Eats. And then right away, the pandemic hit. More on that later. But the fact is, she created a now-thriving business that speaks volumes about what she values in her craft. Authenticity, nimbleness, and community. Three of the qualities I found to be most prominent among the artists I've had the pleasure of interviewing. That said, she herself, when I first invited her to be in the podcast, took some time to mull it over and then responded, after some thought, cooking is a form of art. So I started by asking her whether she now really thought of herself as an artist and whether that label was at all useful to her. It's such an interesting question. And I did after thinking about it, when you posed the question, I was like, yeah, actually, you know, we do create beautiful items. We situate items on a plate for the guests to receive. And, you know, the saying always goes, we eat with the eyes first. So I guess we are trying to present something that looks, I guess, satiating to the guests or yourself. So prior to that question, I never really considered myself an artist. I still kind of am teetering to accept that title. Uh, I guess for me, you know, artists are painters, drawers, dancers, or musicians. I never really thought anyone in the colony world as an artist, I, I guess. That's so interesting because you deal with one of our, cru- you're the art that deals with our, one of our most crucial senses, which is smell and taste. Mm-hmm. That's accurate. <laughs> 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 and and you make us and also unlike the other arts we need your productions to survive right <laughs> i mean essentially then if in that case i guess we're all artists in our own right because we all have to at least cook hopefully at least once in our lifetime right um so we have to create something you know sustenance is you know food food keeps us alive 
when I when I've seen you at work on television or seen other chefs at work, the way you conceive of how flavors will mix in someone's mouth is so much like a, to me a painter working on her palate. Oh, yeah. Right? You're 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 making me you're convincing me absolutely. <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> oh, so looking at your work through an artistic lens, as I, I would like to do, I'd love to know what your rehearsal or studio time looks like. How do you how much rehearsal do you put into a dish before you you let a tongue taste it? And where is your rehearsal or studio space? That's a good question. So I typically test things at least once. And what that looks like, um, it could be either at home or it could be in the commissary kitchen that I rent at the moment. You know, you pick flavors, you try to use things that are in season. If not, you know, you just basically, it, how I do it, I try to pick a protein, the main focus of the dish. It may not always be a protein, but the main focus that I want the dish to be. And then I build on top of that. I mean, I start with how I'm even going to cook the, the focal point. It could be brilled or, you know, boiled, anything. So um, I just basically start from there. And like I said, I'll, I, I typically like to create new dishes at home because that's it's so comfortable for me and I'm in my own safe space. So I would just say I, I typically test at least once in my own kitchen. And then where do you get your flashes of inspiration? The, the If you suddenly have an idea for a totally new focal point or a new dish, where, where do those come from? In the dreams, in the shower, eating other people's food, what? All the above. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the shower, actually, it, it, it kind of like is the, I tend to think about in the shower when it's near to be final, like near to serve to the public. But, you know, I basically... My cuisine is Cantonese, so I always try to stay stay with my Cantonese cuisine. Um, and then if, let's just say, radishes are in season, I will go with that and then go off with memories of my childhood dishes that I've eaten to try to make the turnip kind of more Cantonese than New American. I see. So there's also a little bit of storytelling mm -hmm. in your art. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of storytelling, you know, I, I'm, I'm the person that always says that food is medicine, right? It, 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 and it's also our story on a plate, essentially. Um, a lot of mine comes from just basically childhood memories of a lot of my favorite things I like to eat. You know, I wasn't allowed to be picky when it came to food growing up. It wasn't like, you know, the, the adults had their own meals and the children had our, you know, kids meal. Let's just say we, we all ate everything that was served to everyone. So I think for me, that's kind of helped me go off of memory with dishes because I, I, I started eating Cantonese food was the very first taste I've ever tasted in my life. It's interesting because thinking about kind of the stereotypical immigrants and children of immigrants story is that the child of the immigrant goes full on into assimilation mm -hmm. and, you know, will stop eating, let's say, the Cantonese food and will go straight for the McDonald's or the mm -hmm. steak. And it's the next generation that then goes back to the roots. So it's interesting that all along you've really, that flavor has remained really crucial, seminal to you. Absolutely. And I, and I honestly think it's just, you know, living in the United States specifically, you know, I grew up in Canada, in Toronto, but when I moved to the United States in co to attend college, when I was about 19, 
what I saw was being served as Chinese food, quote unquote, and I'll put those in quotes, was not what I grew up eating, right? There were maybe one or two items. I'm like, oh yeah, I saw that on the, on the dinner table. So I think for me, as I've gotten older, it's so important for me to stick to my roots and grab from my memories because I kind of am at the point in my life where I kind of want to reintroduce what Cantonese food is to the world. Yeah. And that that's really where my passion and drive stems from. You strike me as a very resilient and strong person, which actually makes me think I, you went to a Baptist college in Mississippi. <laughs> is that correct? That is correct. I appreciate I appreciate the amount of digging you did. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> Which makes me think, talk about guts. What what um I know it was a, it was a scholarship, right? It was a soccer scholarship. That's that's correct, yeah. <laughs> Were you out at the time? Uh, that's a funny story. So I basically came out in college, maybe three months into my freshman year. I knew deep down inside that I was queer. Um, and I just, you know, kind of had to test the waters a little at a Southern Baptist college. But, you know, people ask me all the time why I chose Mississippi or that college. And it basically two things, soccer and because I wanted to come out. So I thought Mississippi would be the best place to come out. <laughs> Surely even in Toronto, they know that. Right. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like you said, Granted, there's a lot of queer people, of course, who live in Mississippi, but course. still, it's not the first place you think of. No, absolutely not. Especially not a Baptist college. Right, exactly. I, I mean, I don't think I ever have taken the easy way through <laughs> life. So <laughs> why not start with coming out at a Southern Baptist college in Mississippi? Wow, good for you. You really, you went for it full throttle. Of course. <laughs> So we've talked about how your your history and your what makes you you enters the flavors you make. How does queerness enter those flavors? Does it at all? I don't think necessarily it translates into the flavors of the dish. I think just my presence, you know, being a queer Asian chef specifically, I think my presence alone is 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 pretty out there. You know, anyone that doesn't agree with my lifestyle, who I am, they're probably not going to want to try my food, you know? So maybe it does now that I said it out loud, maybe my queerness does um, have an indirect part in my cooking. So tell me about living. How long have you been in Asheville now? Almost seven years at this point. And how long have you been in the South total? Hmm. Other United States. So I'm 45 and I went to college at 19. Wow. My, and minus three years, I think, in between, because I was in Toronto. After college, I moved back to Toronto for about three years. You're a Canadian Southerner. I mean, like, you're oh, a Southerner yeah. by now. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> so, I may so not want to admit that out loud, but that is accurate. <laughs> you totally are. So tell me about why, tell me about living and making your work in a small town. Granted, it's it's a very cosmopolitan small town, mm -hmm, Asheville, absolutely. Mm -hmm. but it's not Toronto or Seattle or New York. Tell me about the advantages and, and disadvantages of, of doing your work there. Oh, yeah. that's I like that question. I would say the advantage, advantages are is, is the teaching part, right? Educating people or, you know, taking pride with being one or two of the first people to introduce my, my cuisine's flavors to an audience. I like that. I like that kind of thrill of it. Um, and, you know, and I did say pride. So I take a lot of, you know, I'm very proud with cooking Cantonese cuisine. And I would say the disadvantage is having to 
reintroduce it to people or, you know, sometimes a lack of specific ingredients. But I think Ashley's done a really good job with the Asian markets that we have here that we can so- that we can source, you know, flavors, all of our flavors and ingredients. Now, I believe you made your huge life change decision to strike out on your own, like right when the pandemic hit. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Yep. That's correct. What did that break, the pandemic, teach you about yourself and your dreams for your career that you might not have known beforehand? I think it reaffirmed my my passion and my drive. I think, you know, it you know, I contemplated, I sat on it for probably a good bit before I actually gave my notice. And I gave my notice in February of 2020. Um, and I worked for a well-known restaurant group here in town. And then I believe all the restaurants closed down in March of 2020. So I was still technically employed, but my, my goal was to, you know, quit my job to start Jay Chong Eats. And I think during the pandemic, it just taught me one life, like life is short because at that time we didn't know what was happening with the pandemic. Right. And we were all very fearful because there was lack of information and, you know, we were hearing numbers of, of deaths rise. So for me, Directly, I was like, "Oh well, if, the, if I'm going to do it, you might as well do it now because we don't know what's what the future holds." And I was very comfortable. I was in my like early 40s when that happened, so I was very comfortable with who I was at the time. That I was confident that whatever I chose to do, like I was betting on myself. So, and I'm very comfortable in that kind of situation. So, you know, it's just any if anything, it reaffirmed that I, I whatever I put my mind to, I can probably most likely accomplish it. You know, I like to talk about reinventing outdated systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly for artists, the pandemic showed them what really needed to be rethought. In your case, the first thing that comes to mind is that Jay Chong Eats has not been in a brick and mortar Mm -hmm. and is doing pop-ups as kind of a different model right now. So I'm wondering, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that system? And also... In terms of thinking of your career over the long haul, what what kind of ways in which high-end cuisine is made needs to be rethought? So I've been very, very fortunate and extremely grateful that my model has has brought me this far, you know, three almost three years in. So I'm so grateful that not having a brick and mortar has been successful for me. And I think that's just because I have no desire. And I don't, I'm not wishy-washy on if I ever will own a brick and mortar. Um, so staying true on that path has kind of helped, you know, fizzle that out. So, and and can, you, can you talk more about that? Why you're so certain that is not your path? Yeah. And I, I think it also goes back to my age, right? Because I am getting older. I really don't want to have the stress or be tied down to something such as a brick and mortar, right? And with my personality too, I like to be flexible. And I think that's why I have so many different, you know, I wear so many different hats with J. Chong Eats. I'm a vendor at local farmer's markets. I provide private dinners in people's homes. I also provide private cooking classes in people's homes and I do pop-ups around town. And I love the mix-up and, and the freedom that I have with all of that, as opposed to waking up every day and going to a brick and mortar and doing my job for, let's say, five to six days a week. It works for it works very well for other people, but for my personality, it, it just seems to, I, I don't like to be that constrained. I don't want to be tied down. So I think that's why specifically I'm so adamant that 
a brick and mortar is not my path. So thinking systemically, what would make it easier for you or someone else like you who wants to do her cooking, her rest, her restaurant work mm-hmm. through a pop-up or as nimbly as you do, mm-hmm. what would make it easier for that to happen? I guess having more, I like collaboration. So maybe having a little bit more collaboration, people that are interested in having, you know, not just myself, but other talented people that cook for a living to come into their space for an evening you know, and, and just provide a meal or dishes to their guests. Um, and I look at it as a more as, as, as community, right? And collaborating with another establishment, let's just say a wine bar in town and bringing their community and my community and meshing them together. It's always intentional who I, who I you know, do pop-ups with, you know, and I always think about our community, you know, because, you know, I, you know, it's, we help each other out, Right. And I mean, I think that's how businesses should look at things, especially when it comes to food and beverage, because Asheville is so well known for food and beverage. Um, and I also think it's getting harder for a lot of people to own brick and mortars at this point because real estate is so has gotten so expensive. So I think the model of a pop up is definitely has grown, and I I love it. I love the concept, and I'm one that likes to stay true to like the OG aspect of a pop-up. I'm not sure where it started, but pop-ups basically are, you know, a chef will go into a space and use the kitchen or whatever that kitchen quote unquote looks like. Because some wine bars, all they have is a toaster oven and maybe a hot plate, right? So you kind of have to get creative with your pop-ups and your menu. And typically I like to do, I typically do this. I don't release the menu of what I'm serving until the day of because I, yeah, I like the thrill of what a pop-up brings, you know, it brings people together. It, it creates, you know, atmosphere of excitement and the unknown. And, you know, we're all, you know, for those that are, you know, adventurous when it comes to eating, I think it's an exciting time. So personally for me, I truly like to keep to um, the original style of what pop-ups are. And for someone like me, just to give people an understanding what pop-ups really are, like, I don't have a brick and mortar, so I can't, if the food I don't sell that night, the pop-up, I can't turn around and sell it tomorrow because I don't have a restaurant, oh, right? right? So right. the concept is, is essentially for, for people doing pop-ups to sell out. Like that is our goal. And sometimes we sell a little earlier, which is great. And sometimes it takes a little longer to sell out, but my goal always is to sell out at a pop-up. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's so, it's thrilling. You know, imagine... You next time you come into Asheville and you know have a pop up, it's it's just kind of exciting to know that you're gonna go to a wine bar and have maybe a glass of wine and the menu you won't know what the menu is or what you're going to feast on until you get there. I mean that's some, it's exciting to me. Maybe it's not exciting to you, but it's definitely exciting to me. Uh, we've touched a bit about the impact you're having just being a queer Asian woman in the world of fine food making mm-hmm. in the American South. What kind of impact do you want to have on the world of the culinary arts in general? I think staying true to, um, how do I say this? I think staying true to what our, our passionate cuisines are. You know, I have conversations with friends all the time, specifically chefs, of color about food appropriation. And I find myself speaking on it a lot because it's very, it's important to me. Um, and I think that's why I choose to cook Cantonese food because it is something that I am one passionate about 
into that's those are the flavors. Like I said before, that's my first flavor. Um, it's my ethnicity. So it's, it's an extension of who I am. So I cook from there. You know, I find that a lot of times some of my favorite meals or favorite chefs are those that cook their, their people's food, essentially. Um, I think that's beautiful. Um, so for me, you know, I would like to see people just staying true to them or at the same time, if you're going to cook someone else's cuisine to be mindful about it and, you know, to not only like just to, to just be mindful of how, how people you're creating another cultures or ethnicities food that might not be your own. And so what would that look like? You think for, for a chef to be mindful about cooking outside of her culture? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess of the appreciation part of it, right. Do, do the research, you know, figure out the history of where things come from or how the flavors, you know, came about, or, you know, I guess it just, educating I would personally educate myself on where it came from stems from and then dive deeper in on what it means to that culture or you know that region let's just say you know I mean I even do it with 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 Cantonese cuisine you know I sometimes because I don't know my direct history so sometimes I even have to do the research for my my own cuisine so I just think just being mindful and just understanding that it's an appreciation. And if you're going to, if I were to cook someone else's cuisine, I would do it with the utmost most respect. When you want to take a break in the kitchen and mm-hmm. do something else, yeah. what, <laughs> what, what's the other food you like to cook? Italian, French, Japanese? Is there another like back pocket kind of fun, fun cuisine you like to do? I think... It's, I would have to say Southern food because my wife is from the South. She's actually from Mississippi. So I think I oh my try. God, you really are yeah. fully Southern. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for calling me out. <laughs> you know, so my wife is from Mississippi. She is Southern. And, you know, learning her grandma's recipes or her family's recipes, I always try to, you know, cook them at home for her because it's 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 also her comfort food and now I've adopted it as my comfort food since I've been in the south for so long. So I think, you know, a lot of I do cook a lot of cuisine, Asian cuisine at home, but I would I would say southern next and yeah, that's it. How do you like to get critiques? Hmm. It's all about how we say things, right? I I mean, we're always going to be critiqued, you know, we're critiqued the minute it hits the table. It is hard to see someone's reaction when they do not like your food it is very, very difficult. But at the same time, I mean, we got to learn from it and try to understand what, you know, they didn't like. And, and sometimes it's just at the end of the day, people just don't like a specific item that was in the dish. Let's just say just didn't, you know, it didn't taste well on their palate. But I, I, I embrace criticism and I stutter because it's difficult, but I embrace it. And I just like to be told, head on, you know, and I think that's why when I test things, my wife is the first tester. She's a great tester, but she is the one that I always go to because I think one, because I trust her, I know how to handle her critique. She knows how to say it to me for me to understand and be able to receive it. But also she's, we've been together for almost 17 years now. So she's been eating my cuisine for that many years. Did she, she like it from the bush? Yeah, exactly. Develop a new palate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I think it took. I think 
it took maybe year two, year three, maybe, where she was fully, fully into it. Um, I mean, I did go too exotic at first, but, you know, I've learned so much with, with just her, hearing her, you know, because she, when we go out, we're guests too. Like she is in a, essentially, she tries flavors for the first time always. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoy her critique. And it, I think it helps me grow as an individual to be able to make my dishes better. In the show, you speak about writing your um, combination cookbook and memoir, it mm-hmm. sound, sounded like to me, which involves a whole bunch of artistic skills, mm-hmm. including writing and, you know, further down the line, graphic design ideas. How are you, how's that project com- coming along and how are you prepping for it? And it's- where are you finding inspiration for it? Yeah, it's it's slow, like slowly coming along. I think that's one area that I am intentionally taking it slow. And I think because there's so much emphasis on this, um, and I and I'm thank you for also saying slash memoir because that is truly how I want to write it. So I think I'm taking a very slow approach to it because it is so new and it is out of my comfort zone. And are you doing it, any writing? I've done a little bit of writing and more speaking though. So I may like, you know, make voice memos and, and talk to and speak it at, rather than write it. So that's been helpful with the process. Um, and I guess preparation is just trying to think of what recipes I want to put out there in the world and, you know, and just digging deep to, to, to try to remember like the story or the memory that is attached to each recipe. It's it's interesting because of course food and smell are so mm-hmm. intricately connected to memory. Right, right. So think about when you would come home. Let's say you know in the middle of the day when you were nine years old and you would run into the home like and it was about to be dinner time. Like what that smell was for me. It for me my favorite smell is fondest memory is is literally the smell of jasmine rice in the rice cooker. Not not even not even on a pot on the stove, but there's just a different sweet. I guess, fresh scents that comes from jasmine rice when it's freshly cooked in a rice cooker. Mm. Yeah. And that's memory. It's memories, right? It's, it's childhood. Like I'm smiling. I'm cheesy right now as I'm explaining it to you. It's just, it's our childhood. If you'd like to learn more about Jay and read a longer version of this interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. Please be sure to subscribe to or follow the podcast so you won't miss any upcoming interviews with an exciting range of creative changemakers like Jay. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever podcast platform you use. Special thanks to Jamie Mayer. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.